None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. paper is called The Phytochemical Diversity of Commercial Cannabis in the United States. They had a large sample size of, what was it, like over 80,000 mm-hmm. cannabis samples. I think it was over six states. Mm-hmm. And they used a bunch of different labs. Basically, in the abstract, it says, we show that commercial labels did not consistently align with the observed chemical diversity. However, certain labels are statistically overrepresented for specimen chemotypes. So basically what they're showing is what it's called, sativa and indica hybrid, uh, is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what's contained in the in the samples. They measured mostly uh, like terpenes and high THC or high CBD and then tried to see if what they're called had anything to do with it. They didn't find that. Um, so it's kind of like the same thing with the Kratom, yeah, so they were, Kratom world. You know, they were basically identifying that different cannabis products and labels that different states put out there like Right now, you maybe would get the sativa indica hybrid designation. And there's this notion that indicas are more of a body high versus sativa being more of a, uh, a cerebral high. Yeah. Um, and in general, when you look at the cannabinoid and terpene profile, there isn't necessarily a cannabinoid and terpene profile fingerprint or specific fingerprint for sativas, for indicas and for hybrids. Um, and so, yeah, this was, you know, in previous studies, like the highest amount of commercial cannabis compounds or products that were analyzed. So their cannabinoid and terpene profiles analyzed was like 900 and there are tens of thousands of, of them in this, uh, you know, recent study that we're, we're reviewing now. And so, yeah, basically they're just saying like, you know, before we can provide recommendations on what an informative label would actually look like, we need to understand how diverse, uh, the cannabinoid and terpene profiles actually are and see if it relates to anything, you know, related to indica sativa and hybrid. Yeah. And they talk about like uh, genotypes, ke- phenotypes yeah, and chemotypes has been shown that the chemical phenotype, chemo- which is a chemotype of plants can be used to classify cannabis and to chemical varieties or chemovars with different ratios of yeah, cannabinoids yeah, yeah. and terpenes are hypothesized to cause distinct effects for human consumers. It says a few studies have investigated the major minor cannabis cannabinoids together with the terpenes, and none have performed a thorough chemotaxonomic analysis on the data set with tens of thousands of samples across several legal cannabis markets. 
Uh, mapping the chemical diversity of cannabis consumed by millions of people has important implications for consumer health and safety, such as identifying how many chemically distinct types of cannabis are currently consumed in legal mar- markets. So this may be consequential if distinct chemotypes are later determined to cause reliably different effects. So essentially they're trying to find out scientifically what what's the variation um, based on cannabinoids and terpenes. I, I don't know. They don't get so much into effects, but they do. Uh, they, they group them together based on terpenes and, and levels of THC or CBD. And their, their sample size was 89,923 samples from cannabis testing labs in six U.S. states. So, Which is a, a major, a major uh, uh, improvement versus the, the last paper sort of in this line of research had 900 samples. So we're definitely um, looking at more samples, tens of thousands of samples in this, in this study. Yeah, and they used uh, Leafly, uh, which I'm sure people are familiar with, together with common industry labels and popularity metrics associated with them by the consumer-facing cannabis platform Leafly. Leafly is kind of like a cannabis review, so you can go on and give it one to five star ratings and say this help me sleep or help me give me energy uh it's just basically a weed review site uh they have a database of like the all the cannabinoid levels and terpene levels and the different chemotypes yeah like i said it says we also examine the consistency of strain names i was looking under results and it says 84.5 percent of cbd dominant samples had total thc levels above 0.3%, which is interesting because hemp is defined as cannabis with THC levels below 0.3%. So there's a lot of hemp out there, I guess, that's um, CBD dominant but can't be classified as hemp legally. But I think most of the samples uh, were THC dominant. By far, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like 96% of them were. And so... Um, this distinction between a THC and CBD ratio is something that I think the market has gradually gotten a hold of. And so like you could have a 20 to one, which would be high THC. You could have a one to one, which would be essentially equal THC, equal CBD. And then you would have a one to 20, which would be really high CBD. The numbers can change. You know, you'd have a 10 to one, a five to one, a two to one. Um, but ultimately, you know, this this um, approach of categorizing chemotypes based on the THC to CBD ratio came from an earlier body of research that was generally funded by law enforcement, and so they call they would call type one or high THC the drug type, and then they would have the one to one the equal, and then they would have the CBD high CBDs uh, type, and that would be like the hemp type or non psychoactive type. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad that they're sort of shedding those type one, type two, type three, and like drug type and non-drug type because it was very law enforcement e-lingo. Um, but it, it, you can see it really well um, in their first figure, uh, the three distinct groups and that the total THC concentration does have many more samples in it uh, than the others. Of course, at this point, that's just based on what they have access to, you know, 86,000 versus 2,000 and 1,300 uh, for the balanced and the total CBD dominance. So 
you know, that will improve as time goes on, but THC dominant is where everybody has been sort of pushing uh, cannabis cultivation for the last several decades. And so that's where we, where we get what we got. Yeah, and, and I think it's funny because it's similar to Kratom. Uh, people, you know, talk about Kratom strains, and they're they're not really consistent. They're not really strains. So it seems like cannabis industry has the same type of issue. It says here the cannabis industry also uses colloquial strain names to label and market products. Distinct strains of THC-dominant cannabis are purported to offer distinct psychoactive effects. Uh, while the commercial use of nomenclature is not accepted by uh, the scientific community, it's conceivable that distinct chemovars of THC dominant cannabis could cause different psychoactive effects on average. And then it also said, if it's labeled if it's labeled indica, sativa, or hybrid, um, it has uh, indistinguishable terpene composition. Whereas if they're labeled by their dominant terpene. There's a better visual representation of data points by yeah, that yeah. label. So let's go let's go to strain name. Let's go back to strain name real quick. Okay. Because like what strain name does presumably indicate is the lineage in which that cannabis came from. And so, you know, if you have a Skywalker OG and the next one is a Skywalker OG that's truly from that original strain and down the line, that would, that would be presumably what it represents. And so as long as, and there's nothing stopping growers or companies from just calling whatever they have Skywalker OG, or if yeah. you get into like the cookies blends, like ice cream cakes, gelatos, sunset sherbets, like things start to get messy and growers maybe might be able to get away with calling a gelato a sunset sherbet and the, and the consumers would never know the difference. It would be in the right ballpark. But um, in order to have the scientific community accept this sort of the strain name as a lineage, we would need a genetic component and we would need that genetic component measured and then tracked through the supply chain. And I think recently you had talked to a group that does that. Yeah. Uh, it's KREI. They're um, from Spain and they, I think they call it Cree. We met with them, me and two other guys from Kratom Science, and they were just talking to us about they're trying to put a genetic fingerprint on different cannabis strains um, so you could track them from their origin based on DNA rather Mm -hmm. than, like in this this one, it looks like they talk about they're looking at the terpenes and they're putting them in one, two, and three. Yeah, so they ultimately found like three clusters of terpene terpene pairs, but you know, that's different than the, the the cannabinoid and the terpene profile, that chemotype analysis is not intended to necessarily reflect lineage, yeah. but to reflect the effect profile and the flavor profile that you would have. So just a, a difference there between strains and the chemotype. They also talk about the entourage effect, uh, and it says it has been difficult to confirm experimentally due to onerous regulations that make it challenging to execute in vivo studies with controlled administration of the myriad of compounds found in cannabis. Is there a way to tell? This is what I was curious about. I mean, can you tell just from the terpenes what the effects are going to be in combination with THC dominant or CBD dominant? Great question. And so, you know, really my decision to leave academia and university like funded and housed research was based on the fact that if I wanted to collect human consumption data on different cannabis strains, it would be easier in a commercial market 
than it would be in the university, you know, research setting. And so, you know, they, they talk about how limiting that can be. Like, you're not, you're not allowed to bring people in and have them smoke and have them smoke six different strains and, and then report their effects back. Um, But in the commercial market, we can, and that's, that's where this research is sort of pointing to. And so the, in terms of the terpene profile and the different effects, so aroma and the sense of smell is the best way or best mechanism that consumers currently have in order to sort of pick a strain or a cannabis product that will give them the effects they want. Um, so by, by their nose, so they could smell a strain and say, oh, I don't like that strain. And that strain might be like a high lemonine strain and they could smell another one and it's more earthy and musty and has caryopoline in it and, and maybe myrosine and say, this is the direction I want to go. What we're really running into at this point, though, is that there's no real way to, um, it's like a limitation of language. So we know that their nose is the best way to do it. And we know that their nose doesn't lie. The smell doesn't lie. But we haven't yet aligned those specific aromas and and um, profiles to specific clusters and groups of cannabinoids or terpenes. So we're not there yet. And there's a bit of a, um, a gap. And it, I think it comes from, you know, like, how do you describe the experience of getting high and the difference between what is a Tangi and what is a Skywalker OG? Like, how do you verbalize and sort of standardize the effects and how they're different. I felt, you know, sort of a headband effect and my back was loose, you know, versus there's just like unlimited ways you could describe it. And none of it really sort of like summarizes it nice in a nice, neat, you know, um, uh, scalable or, or quantitatively based approach. And so we're still trying to align those. And what we see is that, especially for this one, like they found the, the highest on average terpenes was myrosine, beta caryopoline, and lemonine. Um, and then they found different terpene subsets. And yes, you're right. If you display, if you list the top three terpenes, that's enough to relate to the customer versus like, you know, listing 32 terpenes on uh, a nutrition sheet. Uh, but that's, that's sort of the, the difficulties and the, the gap that we're currently trying to bridge between aromas and the effect profile. A lot of the roadblocks have to do with the fact that cannabis isn't federally legal. It says, uh, in contrast to other widely used but federally regulated plants, e.g. corn and other crops, Regulated by the Federal Seed Act, there are no enforced rules for the naming of cannabis varieties. This stems from the fact that cannabis is not federally legal in the U.S., which prevents an overarching enforceable naming standard from emerging. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, I was talking to this with a group where we're trying to classify different um, cannabis strains based on their hemotype, their cannabinoid terpene profile for an app right now. It's one of the one of the projects that I'm working on. And what has been interesting is that. Um, especially comparing the West coast to the East coast. So like imagine on the East coast, there's let's say 30 cultivators in Ohio and all of those cultivators had to get their strains or their genetics from most likely someone on the West coast. And so they've got a Tangi, they got the Skywalker, they got the blue dream, they got the train wreck, you know, and presumably in Ohio, they're keeping those names and carrying them on. So I sort of pose as a thought experiment to the group where it's like, but are strain names becoming more stable because it's a commercial marketplace now? It's not just a, 
you know, in the black market, you change the name or give it a new name because maybe that's, you know, something you can add as a selling point to the customer. But ultimately in Ohio and the strains that I purchased from the medical program do seem to line up with what my idea of those, those flavor profiles would be. So I think it's, it's interesting to consider like the, the effect of the commercial market and having it be on a state-by-state basis might actually be stabilizing the strain names to a certain degree. Um, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to tell that or confirm that until genetics are, um, you know, inc- uh, measured and included any right, like, you know, with uh, corn and soybeans and other federally regulated agricultural products, there certainly is uh, control and even IP around the specific genetics and naming uh, rights that you can use. I don't know if I've told this story before, but we did have controlled substances in my lab at Tulane during graduate school, and we could get other schedule one drugs, no problem um, within two days. Uh, mm-hmm. But to get cannabis, there was like several more forms that you'd submit your order form, then you'd submit a form to the health and human services and submit a form to NIH and submit a form to the DEA, submit a form to, to uh, at NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse. And then, you know, several months later, you get this tiny little vial of, of THC, you know, that's, that was mixed with alcohol and that we couldn't study separately. So it's almost as if cannabis has been in a special schedule one, you know, it's, it's even different from the other drugs that are in the schedule one. So it's been difficult for researchers to get a handle on it because of that federal prohibition for sure. It has a lot of measurements uh, based on region, like on page like 40 and 41 of the study. They show uh, THC concentrations, um, CBD dominant varieties uh, based on the six states that they're doing. And I guess that would be because they're all really separate legal markets aren't supposed to cross over. It doesn't look like it's, it's really variable from region to region, though. Yeah, this was this was an interesting paper that actually had different states in it. Most of the papers yeah. don't have different states, but what what they found that was interesting was the data from California. There were limited differences between the chemotype profile of indica and sativa, but if it was from the Netherlands, there were specific tor- terpenes that were more often associated with indica versus sativa, and if it was from Washington State, there were no differences between indica and sativa. So there are like differences state to state on whether or not um, the terpene profile actually aligns with with the, the chemotype that they're seeing or a different chemotype, a different terpene profile. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. And, you know, my, you might would say like from the Netherlands, they are more um, concerned and tuned into uh, the different sort of like genetic backgrounds. Like the Netherlands is one of the best, you know, and most for the longest time, a place to get seeds from and they're sort of the keepers of the seed libraries and so it makes makes sense that there would be differences there so you were talking about the academic versus commercial studies where you could you know actually have people report smoke cannabis and have them report their effects um and i just have a quote that kind of relates to that but studies seeking to falsify claims about the psychoactive and medical effects of different cannabis types should test chemical ratios that match those found commercially. If it's true that different chemotypes of THC dominant cannabis reliably produce different psychoactive effects, then a sensible starting point is to design studies comparing the effects of common distinctive commercial chemotypes such as those described by our cluster analysis. Would that kind of look like, you know, just basically having a bunch of people smoke and like report their effects? 
Yeah, but I, even more importantly, what they're saying is that like they should be smoking the chemotypes that are actually found in the commercial market. And so, you know, really up to the last year, the well, it's still up to the last year, but the DEA in the last year has now identified private companies to commercial cannabis for scientific research. And before mm. that, you had to get all of your cannabis from this single source location at the University of Mississippi that was growing like ostensibly the nastiest dirt weed that is even yeah. around. Like there's <laughs> maybe it was 10% THC and it just had no terpenes at all. It was like uh, a desert cannabis. And so yeah. the chemotype didn't match anything at all to what would be a Tangier Skywalker. You know, it didn't match the commercial profile at all. And so what they're saying is that um, if you're going to do this in a scientific setting, you need to get you need to get uh, different strains that that reliably relate to what is actually out in the commercial market. And so we're getting there like just now the DEA got the authorization or made the announcement that they were intending to allow additional cannabis growers uh, emerge for, for specifically for research purposes. And they were accepting applications. They accepted the applications and sat on them for several years, two to three years. <laughs> and now this year, really, they're saying, okay, you guys can go ahead. So those operations are probably in the midst of a build out, you know, as we speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, then once you actually have, access to those commercial strains how what it, would it look like for a study like that so you know the most uh, true to form would be to have uh, you know participants come in um, and either smoke from a joint or most likely they would have to do some sort of vaporization so even if it was like a vape bag like a volcano um, yeah. The ethics committee would probably prefer that they did they did it through vaporization, and then you would have to have some sort of you know survey or a set of questions that they then answer. You know they they do it before they do it after you know they do it like right after and then maybe an hour later they do the same questionnaire over and over and then once you get those results you would want to um, try to find groups within those survey responses and match that to different clusters of cannabinoid and terpene profiles to see if like people are reliably reporting the same effects for the same um, terpene clusters. Um, and I, you know, I actually have a, a good story um, about that if we want to get into it. Yeah, sure. Are you familiar with the cannabis products called Dosist? No. So they came out in California a few years back, and the idea was that you would buy a little pre-filled pen. One was for sleep. One was for, um, I think, energy. Well, I, I don't know exactly what the different types were. I could probably look it up real quick. But the whole, the whole marketing effort was that these are specific um, doses and specific formulas for these specific activities. So yeah, it looks like they got uh, Calm, Explore, um, sleep and relief. Um, and so, you know, a specific dose based on and a specific um, formula to provide certain effects. And the, the group that made that, the research that was based on that is actually one of the largest studies where they had consumers smoking um, specific formulations, specific terpenes, um, either present or not present, and then recording those effects. And I think there was something like 700 um, individual humans that, that participated in this study. And so it's not commercially reported, 
Um, but it is exactly the type of study design and research methodology you would want to align them. Um, but what came out of this research now and what we're talking about and working with this, this lab on pure analytics out in Northern California is called the terpene quotient. And so in many ways, uh, the THC to CBD ratio or just giving information to consumers in ratio form seems to be something that people can quickly adopt and understand. The 20 to 1, 0 to 1, 1 to 1, uh, 1 to 20. So yeah. the, the terpene quotient or TQ, terpene quotient is a ratio where there's uh, 1 through 3 in the front and in the back there's 4 through 7. And the 1, 2, 3 represents the most dominant terpenes. So the terpene pairs, um, and let's say that it could be um, one of the groups that was found here, like myrosine or caryopylene, and then two would be lemonine. And so ultimately you end up with like, okay, Jack Harar is a one to four, a tangy is a two to three or two to five um, and, and so on and so forth. So it's a way to they use the research from doses to make the doses products, but then they also started understanding which terpenes lead to consistent effects between different humans, like to sleep, what were the terpenes that actually induce that type of sleep? And so, mm. you know, in working with this app group now and working with this uh, Samantha Miller over at Pure Analytics in, in Sonoma County, we are hoping to like build on the, the uh, Smith 2021 paper that we're reviewing now and their data set, which is all available online to calculate the terpene quotient to then see how that results to the different clusters and effects that we get. Um, so it's pretty, pretty exciting. I think it's the, one of the first that has real sort of 700 people and scientific data and scientific rigor that went into it. And it relates those terpene profiles to effects, not necessarily mm -hmm. to flavors or tastes. Wow, that's awesome. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, because because even even said uh, you could bring it up Tangy. It said that one uh, from their samples seemed to be inconsistent. Sixty two point five percent of product averages for Tangy fall into a single cluster, whereas uh, this other strain, Purple Punch, it was a ninety six percent of product averages uh, f fell into uh, cluster one, which is high. Uh, right. Caryophylline, limonene. So, what what about even? I mean, because you've talked before about like THC uh, lab shopping. Like uh, people want to, companies want to get the highest THC because it sells better. Uh, obviously, like, like with tangy uh, within these samples, anyway, it's it's like you can't just get a tangy from one company and, and expect the same kind from another company. What about like uh, consistency within the same company? Because I mean, I. I found a couple that I liked, and the thing with Pennsylvania is like it's it's never the same stuff every time you go. I don't know why that is. Probably because uh, they they didn't issue enough grow licenses. But like every time you go to the dispensary, they have different stuff. Uh, so you can't really uh, you mm -hmm. can't really even get anything consistent by name if you tried. But well, is, is it going to be in even... the lab shopping? Of course, yeah. is like a big deal because if the data that you're looking at in these large scale analyses that uh, where the terpene, or I mean, I'm sorry, the THC to CB ratio is so critical as a differentiation factor. Like it seems to be, you know, one of the best figures in this paper is the uh, figure 10, a potential scheme for classifying commercial cannabis based on cannabinoid terpene profiles. And you'd see that 
their first way to distinguish it is like, is it high THC? Is it uh, one-to-one or is it high CBD? And then there's another like, okay, are there any minor cannabinoids that we are finding over two or 3%? There's not a lot of strains out there that exist like that. Um, but if it, if it does in fact exist, you want to note that. Um, but if the numbers are bad uh, or artificially inflated, um, you would certainly see situations where like the products are not falling into the same clusters, like 96% of, of those purple punch uh, strains falling into the same cluster is really good, you know, mm. really good for the clustering model and how it's differentiating it to show that. But if, if the strains are like separated 50% in cluster one, 50% in cluster two, is that really because they were different or is it because there were errors at the lab? Um, especially with the cannabinoids and, you know, if labs even measure the terpenes, a lot of the available data out there doesn't have those terpenes. Yeah. Um, and so this is just an anecdote from, from pure analytics as well. When we were talking about the terpene quotient, she was mentioning that like out in California these days, um, it, you used to have to have 25% THC in order to even get into a dispensary. Like the dispensaries huh. wouldn't buy any cannabis products that were lower than 25% THC. And now she's saying that currently the trend is pushing to say, we're not going to buy anything unless it's above 30% THC. Then wow. We're not going to even put it on our shelves unless it's a 30% THC or above. That's a real problem because the average THC value in California is 22%. Yeah. even lower than the 25. And so it's, it's a significant issue um, that really needs to be addressed. And the regulators don't seem to want to tap it, you know, or like get into it yet, but they're going to have to, and maybe it'll take the feds to do it. Um, and it's unfortunate, you know, the, the, uh, Samantha Miller, I really trust her and, and her scientific rigor. And it was sort of the same situation with me when I was the lab director. It's like, if the lab director has a quote reputation for giving low numbers, they're not giving low numbers, they're giving the real numbers. And, <laughs> and so, you know, that's sort of an indicator. If, if anyone ever says, oh, that lab gives no low numbers, they're not giving low numbers, they're giving the real numbers, there's no inflation. And so if you want a true scientific assessment, go, you know, send your products to the labs where there's quote, low reported numbers yeah. and see what comes back because that's, that's what the real numbers are. Hopefully that'll change. Uh, that's just funny. Um, the lab shopping, whole, the whole thing is just amusing. <laughs> I want to get the it's, highest. It's I mean, thirty percent is like a lot. I mean, what if somebody yeah, who wants, wants a that? mild like twenty-year-olds? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's definitely especially like older people who just want a little bit of weed for their back that hurts and stuff. They don't want to get like stoned. <laughs> I've, well, I've seen that. I've seen that on podcast advertisements now, like dad weed, where it's yeah, um, a CBD grass. plant with the Delta 8 on it, and it's only like a 10% Delta 8, so it's a low THC. Yeah. From, from the perspective of, like, projects that I'm currently working on, like this recommendation engine, so, like, you know how Netflix says, if you like this, you may like this. Well, yeah. We're working on an app that would say, okay, if you like Jetty's uh, Tangy cartridge, you might also like these you know, specific products, yeah. uh, Cresco's this or whatever. Um, and there's also value to companies like Cresco for demand planning to have the quantitative approach to that. And so what I sort of took away from this paper is that when you evaluate your classification models, you want to approach each location of where the load data is from separately before you merge them, right? So they, they analyze California, then they analyze the Netherlands, then they analyze Washington, and they found those differences in 
whether or not the, the terpenes were reliably fit within a distinct category. And it was limited in California. It was very clear indica sativa netherlands and there was no difference in the state of washington and so Hmm. as we collect all of these different data sets and merge them together um, you want to be mindful like there are several labs in michigan that make their data public all of their results public and so we're analyzing on a state-by-state basis Um, and that also goes into the the recommendation of like what we have to collect about the user and we need to know where the user is in order to provide the, the best recommendation um, the most common terpenes being myrosine. I think everybody knows that pretty well, but myrosine, beta-caryophylline, and lemonine as the, the top three most common terpenes, that's good to know. And I think that makes mm. sense. Um, and then they also found the sort of three different clusters. So caryophylline with lemonine, myrosine with pinene, and then the uh, terpinoline as the third cluster. So these three Pair, these three clusters based on terpene pairings um, are very interesting. No, no study yeah. has um, sort of reported results like that yet. And, it, you know, it's really interesting to say, okay, well, let's look at the other data sets, ones that weren't realized in this one and say, okay, does the caryophylline lemonine cluster, um, so is that the two highest terpenes in these other strains? Does that hold true? So looking at this in different, in different uh, data sets, data sets that weren't analyzed by Smith at all, um, and relate that. So do we find a, a specific cluster with caryophylline and lemonine? Are those the two top terpenes mm-hmm. in any strains or a group of strains? Are myrosine and pinene the two highest strains in others? You know, how much of the strains in this other data set fit into the myrosine pinene cluster? Are there other novel terpene compounds or like, you know, one or two that can be paired together that we find that, that reliably or confidently results in when a different groups or different classifications. Ultimately too, I would say this group has really been at it and doing some good work. Um, you know, Smith, Vierga, um, Keegan, and then of course, Nick Jacobs, who is a neuroscience PhD at Leafly. Um, and he has several mm-hmm. papers uh, out where he's doing this type of analysis. The, the biggest one before was, uh, based on lab shopping and reported THC values. Um, but now he is, you know, sitting on top of that Leafly data and is the corresponding author for this uh, paper, which generally means that he was the driving force behind this paper and getting that group together um, and performing yeah. the analysis. So it's it's always good to keep an eye on, on stuff Nick's up to if you're following cannabinoid science. Um, also, if you're following psychedelic science, and Nick Jacobs is a good follow um, and definitely a trustworthy scientist out there uh, performing statistics in a way that, you know, you don't have to really second guess. He really is out there doing good stuff. Um, awesome. And again, this data set that they use is, is being shared. Um, it's available to download. It's like a supplemental material for this paper. Um, and so you mm. got to give any group of researchers kudos when they are providing open data and open access to their data for the science. It's the way it should be. Um, it's not always the case, but the, the movement for open data and open science is, is getting louder and moving forward. So, you know, cheers to them on that because, yep. you know, other groups like me and these app developers can have access to that set, join it with other sets that are shared um, and come up with something new, like sort of iterative development is what science is. Um, so I, overall, I think this is a really important paper uh, in the classification of cannabinoids and terpenes, um, of course, and we mentioned at the top the tens of thousands of samples that they evaluated compared to, you know, a year ago, uh, maybe two years ago when the highest 
uh, was 900. So this represents a significant advancement there. Thank you, Dr. John Cache. Check out thecannabisdiary.co. Check out KREI method. It's a company that's trying to put a genetic stamp on cannabis strains. And I have a link to them in the description. And check out this study that we talked about. There's a link to that in the description. Please like, subscribe, share, rate, review. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.